Embedded in the market. Sponsored by Tokyo. Welcome to Embedded in the Market. This is Frank Robledano speaking, and I'm here with Julien Duv. And Julien, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Frank. I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, today, we're going to speak about embedded finance as per usual. And Julian, as he uh, refers to himself to English speakers, is from Tomb. So, Tomb, what is Tomb? What's that all about? And what do you do there, Julian? All right. Hi, Frank. So, uh, Tomb, in essence, is a, let's say, next generation core banking platform. And we help banks and financial institutions to not only launch new propositions and new customer experiences to the market uh, faster, but we also offer a path for incumbent banks and banking as a service platform to move away from legacy onto a latest technology open ecosystem uh, platform and migrate in a way that is less risky, faster, and more cost effective. And we also uh, offer our services in a modular fashion that enables um, even non-financial institutions to embed some financial uh, core banking technology elements into their uh, their end-to-end -end, um, value chain, mm -hmm. thus fostering embedded finance in the uh, along the way. We have a, uh, a strong presence in uh, in Europe and a strong mm -hmm. growth in Europe, and we're now opening an office in uh, in Dubai to serve the Middle East region at the uh, beginning of 2024. And what precisely do you do at TUM? So I'm a director for global partnership at TUM. Um, so I'm responsible for building our ecosystem of fintech solution provider partners, um, as well as the onboarding and the enablements of our system integrator partners. So all alliances and association with any entity that has that is addressing the sort of same market and same type of clients that we are. The goal is to help us better address the needs of our customers, but also accelerate our growth through local and uh, regional alliances. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when you were talking about Tomb, you talked about moving into new ways of doing things and, and offering a modular fashion in which things were, were being created. What do you think has changed in terms of financial services that has led to a company like Tomb being created? What is, uh, what is happening in the market with regard to financial services? So it's a bit of a, an accelerating sort of trend over the past, let's say, 10 years uh, in the way people consume financial services. There's obviously a lessening amount of loyalty, of acceptance, of cookie cutter experiences. It's much easier to switch and to shop around. We're moving away from the sort of brick and mortar model, uh, one account with one bank for life. To you know, people having really easily eight different credit cards with different banks for different uses. So I think the, the first wave we've seen was around centered around the channel. Um, it was more around online and digital banking. So financial institutions were offering the same products, but focusing on digital channels for people to consume them. Mm -hmm. And that has given way then a bit more recently in a more sort of tech-driven evolution with the rise of new banking platforms that made it easier for banks and for financial institutions to, and also cheaper, to tailor uh, new products and interactive experiences 
audiences. So it, it was then capitalizing on those new digital channels, but then being able to offer new products that were closer to the, the needs of specific people. And now what we're seeing is a, a revolution around the channel itself, and that is embedded finance, where financial services are now consumed via uh, non-traditionally financial channels, being you know, e-commerce merchants, any point of sale uh, or any, uh, any typical uh, channel by which you would consume any, any products and the ability to also consume financial services through that matter. Okay. How has that proven to be of benefit to those people generally? Uh, it changes the business model of financial services. So because um, because the bank is theoretically capable of addressing all those consumer needs and to supply those products, it doesn't mean that the consumer will actually consume them. So embedded finance leverages existing non-financial distribution channels to provide services at a lower cost, but also in the right form at the right time. So for consumers or for SMEs, for example, the, um, the traditional model means that first they have to establish and understand what they need properly and then they will need to research the available products the market and understand what will meet those needs mm -hmm. and what embedded finance does is it flips things around and you start from the need at the moment that it's created um, so I'll give you the example of uh, let's say a uh, hotel booking right. for example you want to book a hotel in a foreign country First, you're going to uh, to have obviously a need for payments uh, facilities like remote payments for the uh, for the service. You're going to need potentially also um, currency conversions or foreign exchange. Mm -hmm. You might even need travel insurance, and you might even need to finance that purchase. So that's several elements that while you're purchasing a non-financial service, which is a hotel room, you're you're going to need a whole bunch of different uh, financial services. Right. So embedded finance at the point of sale makes for a much higher conversion probability for both financial services and the product itself. That's for the consumer. For the distributors, then they can leverage new revenue streams, obviously, away from the typical products. And financial institutions are able to open new um, new distribution channels that cost less to acquire those customers because they delegate the acquisition to the merchants, uh, increasing volumes and uh, and margins. Exactly. We've established then that obviously all of that infrastructure, all that financial product infrastructure behind something as simple as getting a hotel room is obviously good, as we said, for the consumer. It's good for the business because it's exploiting new revenue streams, good for the financial institutions because obviously it's their products. And, and that's within the consumer sphere. So let's move into the corporate sphere, into the B2B area. How do business ecosystems come into play? How does embedded finance, because I think we're we're all accustomed to embedded finance in the consumer market, or we have, even though we may not have realized it, or that's the new term that we're using for it, whether it's, you know, going to Amazon and using a credit card or yeah. a buy now, pay later scheme or whatever it is, embedded finance is extremely extensive in the consumer market. How do we talk now about the corporate sphere, about the B2B sphere? It enables companies to reduce, uh, well, first reduce friction when selling their own, uh, when selling their own products. So if we look at the sort of the B2C uh, model where companies are selling products and services, so it removes that friction, it helps, uh, it helps acquire uh, customers easier and it increases affordability. You can get all those financial services at the moment where you buy them without having to delay sort of the purchase. Uh, if you look at corporate partnership in the tech uh, world, for example, the uh, the rise of of the ecosystem platforms for financial uh, for core banking uh, platform, for example, 
mm -hmm. um, for financial institutions, the rise of these tech ecosystems enables faster and more cost-effective launch of new propositions that then uh, obviously uh, get passed on to the uh, to to the end user, be it an SME, a corporate, or a consumer. The, uh, those modular ecosystem platforms uh, combine different technologies that can be tailored to evolving business models uh, without heavy times and cost of integrations. And so on the one hand, banks can stay agile and nimble, and they can, uh, they can have their tech infrastructure evolve quickly without heavy costs. And at the end, they can pass on those first tailored experiences to their corporate business and, uh, and, consumer, and consumer clients who can then avail of new experiences and technology without having to pay a premium price for it. Now, when you say banks, were you speaking about incumbents specifically or neobanks or challenger banks or all of them? I think both. Uh, I think both incumbent banks obviously don't have the uh, the burden of legacy and are able to uh, to avail immediately of this uh, of that new technology to launch really quickly, very specific, tailored, and interactive offering. But incumbent banks um, now have the ability to to slowly and in a in a controlled and less risky way migrate away onto uh, onto those new uh, those new platforms and if we look at if we look at the sort of changing landscape of the way people consume financial services uh, and the role that the bank has to play in it um, i think embedded finance banks are increasingly aware of the the threat and the opportunity as well of what uh, what embedded finance represents with every every shift in an industry, you can either you know ignore it and uh, and let uh, let someone else do it, or you uh, you can partner with a fintech, you can merge with one, or build your own platform with the tools that Tomb and others are uh, putting at their disposal in a in a much more affordable and uh, cost effective and fast way in that sense. So if we look at the current climate. With, you know, rising interest rates, banks are more looking now back at the uh, you know interest margin and balance sheet, and uh, the incumbents have a real, I think, advantage, especially really large one over, let's say, fintechs and uh, and smaller players potentially or new entrants, because a cost of capital has uh, has increased drastically, makes it harder uh, for sort of growth stage fintechs to uh, to enter the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're also able to capitalize um, on their uh, on their balance sheet, that thing like that they can leverage for you know financing products. One element also that is uh, that is crucial is their relationship to regulators, their know-how around managing risk and compliance. Uh, their reputations and obviously their uh, their existing customer relationships. So this is a, an area where the incumbent bank uh, can now avail of technology that is going to free themselves from the legacy and that where they can completely leverage this uh, this advantage that they have to make to take advantage of uh, of these new ways of consuming financial services. And those are big advantages. I mean, let's not understate what those advantages actually are. Uh, you just said something interesting that sort of jibes with some of the comments I've received from people around the Tokyo offices, particularly our extremely knowledgeable higher level staff. They're people who have been dealing with the finance market and technology for quite some time. Many of them, I shan't say who, but many of them feel that perhaps the role of incumbents may be changing or that it may be evolving or that they're going to undergo a bit of an evolution. Where do you think incumbents in general are going to go in the market, technologically speaking and, and within their specific niches? 
Well, that's a good question. It's always uh, it's always it's a toss up, right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard to uh, it's hard to predict. What we see is that uh, traditionally banks have been delaying um, moving away from legacy because of inherently the risk that it poses to their uh, to their to their existing business. The reason why uh, you have banks nowadays running on thirty to forty year old core systems is that it is um, it is extremely risky to touch it. Um, so having the ability to enable of technology that's going to help them move away from legacy in a gradual way sort of fragmenting the scope of what core used to be into uh, into different inter- interchangeable and independently deployable modules will enable them uh, to gradually replace without reducing so reducing well without let's say putting at risk the uh, the existing operation and what is the revenue generating operation there the ability, in essence, to segment their uh, their different business uh, lines of business and and modernize them one by one without having to either maintain two cores uh, or two core platforms for mm-hmm. a long period of time, which res- results in uh, you know a lot of overhead and uh, and increasing costs, or without having to go down the path that of the big bang sort of replacement which uh which everybody now has given up on mm-hmm. um and is uh, and is certainly not going to undertake anymore um that's, that's a very interesting point it doesn't have to be all or nothing for the incumbents yeah. they can choose to as you said segment their operations or split things off or spin out even other smaller companies and we've seen them do that on occasion but in light of embedded finance it may accelerate that process that's an yeah. interesting point where do you think it is best for incumbents to participate in the changing landscape. Uh, I know I know that we can't predict exactly what their role would be, but how do you see them participating in this new landscape? Participating into the the sort of third wave around embedded finance, you mean? Yes, correct. Well, there, there are several ways. Um, at the, the lower level, I think there is one asset that they that they have that they can definitely bring into the mix by partnering with those merchants or those um, those non traditionally financial services providers uh, and more, you know, goods and services providers. Is their um, relationship with the regulator, um, their their ability to manage uh, to manage risk and compliance, the ability to bring also the license, uh, their their banking license for the different types of financial services is something that they can partner with the, the merchants or the, the corporate uh, to help them offer without the corporate having to go out and become a, regula- a regulated entity. So regulated, mm-hmm. so the partnership could be at that level and then it could go for a deeper integration, moving into integrating their own, uh, their own channels, their own payment rails, offering their infrastructure and then to the point where the corporate becomes an agent um, more than anything to the uh, to the bank for uh, for sending then uh, you know revenue new customers uh, in the way so from a very low height now let's say low touch or low embedded but still pretty a pretty important configuration of just lending the license and the relationship with the regulator all the way to the entire infrastructure um, around payments around cards and uh, and its entire system with the corporate being um, being the sort of customer acquisition channel let's say for the for the financial institution in that respect interesting i'm going to say something controversial because i was speaking with someone who's very much entrenched in the finance world he said i'm going to say something that uh, nobody is willing to say and he said i think the way that licenses are handled is going to change and i don't know if i agree with that 
what do you think? Do you think that the current that the current means that incumbents have with their licenses, that entire machine of banking, is that going to change as well? If you look at uh, there's there's new types of licenses that are starting to emerge in the past few years, uh, you know, moving away from the strict banking license to let's say the e-money institution um, licenses, the the payment provider license, the fintech license type you have in, uh, in countries like Switzerland, for example. So there's been a big boom with uh, a huge number of new licenses being granted um, in the past few years. Some countries granted you know 100, 150 different licenses um, to various institutions. So there's been some kind of a first wave of, uh, let's say, democratization. I don't know if that is even a word, but anyway. It, it is. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. All right. So that's, um, and but we're seeing a, a shift away from that now in the sense that those regulators now have, are sort of revising the way they approach it. And they would now encourage those EMIs that are strong enough to survive to then become banks themselves and sort of seeing a concentration and a reduction of the number of regulated entities in favor of larger entities emerging in that sense. Which, may be, in, which, which may be in light of, you know, what's happened over the last year with several international entities and banks having their own controversies, right? It is definitely a reaction to, um, to that in essence. Now, um, as far as corporates getting their own licenses, I think it's not something, um, I mean, there's, it, it's been a phenomenon, but it hasn't been mainstream. And we'll need to see what happens in the sense of the corporate itself becoming regulated and offering 100% of the uh, financial services value chain in that sense, from the regulation all the way down to the customer, to the customer management and selling of those financial services. Um, is the bank going to be a partner? Is the bank going to be a way outside of the, the entire process? I think it'll be hybrid. Uh, but we're going to see emerging new models around that. Do you think that'll happen in 2024 or beyond? I think we're uh, we're about to find out. <laughs> Good call. For you personally, and I understand that part of your job is to build relationships with a whole bunch of different companies to make sure that Tomb is, is active in the marketplace and its ecosystem. What for you is the point of corporate embedded finance? Big question, I know. Yeah, good, good philosophical. Good question, Frank. Let me uh, let me think. Because you talked about democratization. Mm -hmm. It is it is a way to make it uh, make it more affordable. It removes barriers of entry. It helps corporates access the resources, the financial resources that they need to foster the growth of their business model. So if you look at I don't know, financing a network of franchisees or offering uh, offering finances, let's say like uh, if we look at a telemedicine platforms, offering financing, for example, it, it enables you to make your services more affordable to a larger number of people. So it benefits the corporate by helping them increase sales and it benefits the, uh, the end user by offering them much more tailored services at the moment where they need them uh, with the help of all the contextual data that can be, uh, that can be leveraged to tailor uh, the offering specifically to the needs of customers. So everybody benefits from it in the sense that the uh, the relevance of the uh, well, the frictions removed from selling the product for the corporates, the relevance of the financial service and product that is sold is uh, drastically increased, and the customer gets um, is basically all, all those burdens and those barriers are lifted from the from the the customer to acquire the services and products that they need at that time. Uh, without having to enter into sort of a side like relationship uh, fully formalized with the bank. So it enables for quicker transactions, easier ones, and more tailored products. 
in my marketing materials that I create and sales enablement materials. We talk about it being a win, 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 win for everyone. But uh, I'm still personally trying to find a downside of opening it up to everyone. It's in theory, it certainly is that way. Um, mm -hmm. Now we need to see in practice where that goes, just like everything. I mean, in theory, yes, it is a win-win-win situation. You know, let's hope that companies like Tomb and, and Tokyo can keep it that way. Right? No, absolutely, and I think we have uh, we have very strong synergies there as well to uh, to be delivering those new uh, those new experiences through new channels and helping uh, yeah helping corporates uh, corporates avail fully of the potential of uh, of embedded finance. Julianne, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on and I appreciate your insights. It's been very interesting. Thank you for being on the show. It's much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. Have a great day. You too. Cheers. Bye-bye.